John Algerido, the celebrated 19th century Presbyterian here in Charleston, made the following declaration about what Jesus was saying in verse 8. I want to draw your attention to verse 8 there. Jesus says, note this, he says, When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. Gerardo says, unbelief discards the blood of Christ. The only effectual weapon with which we are able to foil the attempts and resist the assaults of the adversary of souls. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Unbelief succumbs to the world and leaves the soul the sport of its blandishments or the prey of its terrors. Now, what Gerardo is trying to do in that sermon that's so important is he's trying to press into the minds of his hearers that the great problem with the world, the really great problem with the world, is not the notorious evils that we often think of, but it's unbelief dwelling in the heart of men and women and boys and girls in the world. Gerardo will actually say that when people think about unbelief in Christ, they actually think it's a very small and insignificant thing. And yet it is the greatest of evils. Jesus said, I am going to send the Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin because it does not believe in me. Now, we noted last Lord's Day that Jesus is equipping his disciples. He is going to the cross. He is then going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend to the Father. And he is equipping them for the ministry that they're going to have. And he's equipping them uh, for, for him not to be with them bodily. He has, he has told them, I, I, the world's going to hate you. Don't, don't be alarmed by that. Remember, they were anxious. The whole discourse starts with them being anxious. So do not let your hearts be anxious. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Everything Jesus is telling them is to comfort them. What, what will comfort them when they realize the world is hostile to them? What will comfort them when they don't have their, their master and their teacher bodily with them anymore? What will comfort their hearts when they face, as Jesus says at the end of this chapter, tribulation? What's going to comfort them is the fact that he is going to give them another counselor, another defense attorney. Remember, the Spirit's going to come. He's going to be the defense attorney. He's going to bear witness to Christ. He is going to bolster them when their faith grows weak, and he is going to make known through them the testimony of Jesus. He is going to be a defense attorney to the truth of Jesus, both in them and through them in the world. And so you'll notice that that's where we've left off at the end of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, Jesus said, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, what Jesus is going to do in the rest of chapter 16 is he is going to pick up on that theme of the Spirit's work in the disciples, but now he's going to talk about the Spirit's work in the world. So not just what he's going to do in the disciples as they remain in the world, but what he's going to do in the world itself and the impact the Holy Spirit's going to have on the world. Now we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to consider the Spirit's conviction of the world. And then we're going to consider the Spirit's revelation of the Son. And then we're going to consider the Son's victory 
over the world, the Spirit's conviction, the Spirit's revelation, and the Son's victory. We'll notice this, that Jesus, now for what I think I've counted, if I'm correct, he, he says ten times in this discourse to his disciples, I'm going away and you can't come with me. And uh, they're going to be troubled by this. We'll come back to that. He's going to recurrently talk about that, and they're not going to understand what he means by that. But notice what Jesus says in verse 7, and this is a very significant verse. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Now, we have talked about this. Um, Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples, It is better for me not to be here bodily with you, because if I go away, I'm going to come to you with the presence and power of my spirit, and I'm not just going to be Emmanuel, God, with you. I'm going to be God in you. That's remarkable. I'm not just going to be God with you in the flesh. I'm actually going to be God in you. You know, when I was when I was first converted, um, I remember just having my mind and heart flooded one day with the thought, how absolutely amazing that God would form us out of the dust of the ground, that we would then fall in Adam, that we would be deserving of his wrath and curse, that there's nothing good in us, that we are polluted through and through, in our minds, in our hearts, in our affections, in our wills, in our desires, in our actions, there is nothing good in us. From, from the top of our head to the soles of our feet, Isaiah says, nothing but wounds and bruises and sores. Just evil. That's all we are by nature. And then Christ comes and redeems us and hangs on the cross to shed his blood for sinners like us. And then he goes back to his father and, he, and then he sends God the Holy Spirit, and he takes up his residence in us. Just dust, fallen, nothing good in us. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. That he would take up his home in sinners like us. And Jesus is saying, it is better for you if I am not here bodily with you, because if I go away another helper will come to you, another counselor will come, he will dwell in you. And then notice what he does in verse 8. Now he turns and he talks about what the Spirit's going to do in the world. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, if you were to, if you were to mine the annals of church history, and you were to read the commentaries and the, the manuscript sermons that we have, if you, were to, if you were to plow through everything you could on verse 8, almost everybody is going to tell you that what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit's going to come, and, and he's going to take the witness you're bearing and that he's bearing through you, but he's going to bring revival in the world by convicting men and women, individuals of their sin of their need for his righteousness and for the judgment to come. That is not what Jesus is saying. Now, that will have an application, but that is not what he is actually saying here. And, and you know what? J.C. Ryle nails this, y'all. By the way, I've been quoting J.C. Ryle through this whole ser- uh, series 
please read everything by him. This is what Ryle says. Inward conviction is certainly not the meaning of the word rendered reprove. So the word convince is actually the word rebuke or reprove. Ryle said it is rather refutation by proofs, convicting by unanswerable argument as an advocate. That is what is meant. Now, I'll break that down for you. He's saying as the Spirit works in God's people and as they carry the gospel out, The world will so see what Jesus is doing by the Spirit in you, and preeminently here through the apostles in redemptive history, but then through the church and his people, that the world will know that Jesus really is who he said he was, and that he has really done what he said he did, and that the world will be rebuked by the Spirit at work in the world, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment so that the world can try to reject this. And by the way, here's how this works out. In just one day, Jesus would be nailed to the cross and the world would think it had a victory over him. The world would say, oh, that's, that's your savior? The world would say, he's not really who he said he was. He got nailed to a tree. His claims were false. He's not who he said he was. And the disciples themselves, we've already seen this, would have been susceptible to having their faith shaken when that happened. That's why he's been bolstering them for that. But but what Jesus is saying, we see this played out at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes, the world sees and knows that Jesus really is who he said he was. And the world is cut to the heart. Now, sometimes people are cut to the heart and they're converted. And sometimes they're cut to the heart and they gnash their teeth. If you did a little study on the phrase cut to the heart in the book of Acts, it happens twice. Pentecost, spirit comes. Peter preaches these very things, who Jesus is, what he did, how he's coming to judge again. They're cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do to be saved? The Spirit did that in them. Then in chapter 5, when the apostles are preaching, it says that they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth. Or perhaps that was chapter 8 with Stephen. They're cut to the heart and they hate what the Spirit says. Nevertheless, the Spirit is still reproving the world for sin, its lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. So the glorious news is, Jesus is essentially saying the Spirit is going to show you both by what he does in you and by what he does in the world that that everything you have come to know and believe is true and that ultimately you can rest content that I am going to accomplish my purposes in the world. Now there is a second sense, and I do want to press this home, that uh, there is a sense where when the Spirit of God comes in a revival, so you might think of the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards got up and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most hated sermon in American history. And, and by the way, Edwards was not a passionate speaker. Um, Edwards, historians have noted, would read from a manuscript just like he was reading a book. And if he looked up, he would look at the wall in the back. And yet, when he preached that sermon in a friend's church as a visiting minister, the Spirit of God came 
and he so convicted the people of sin, their lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come, that people were weeping and wailing over their sins. Now, the Spirit of God still does that um, when he brings people into saving union with Christ. He does it by convicting of sin, of their need for his righteousness, and of the judgment to come. Now, notice, very interesting, Jesus will unpack this, and I don't want us to go into this in great detail, but in verse 10 and 11, he'll say, concerning, right, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because they go to the Father and they see me no longer, concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged, Again, he's saying, the world is going to see the effect of my death and resurrection. And even in my absence, they are going to be reproved for their sin, their lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. And yet, if you looked at this logically, Spurgeon points this out. It's really marvelous. We've got three things, sin, righteousness, judgment. Sin leads to judgment. There's a judgment day. All of our thoughts are going to be laid bare. It's a terrible, terrible thought. Writer of Hebrews says that it's appointed once for man to die, and after that, the judgment. So Christ came once to bear our sins, and he'll come again apart from sin for salvation. And yet, there's a judgment day. Sin leads to judgment. Every sin deserves the wrath of God, and on judgment day, will be laid bare. Nothing will be hidden. And, and so we ought to find it odd that be, between sin and judgment... Jesus mentions righteousness. Why, why put that between sin and judgment? Well, Spurgeon points out that Jesus is actually holding out the gospel in between sin and judgment. He's saying, look, there is a righteousness that you need so that you can stand on that day, and it is my righteousness. I'm going to the Father as the righteous one so that my people will be able to stand on that day. The world does not have that righteousness. By the way, the world has righteousness, but it's like social things they make up. Everybody's got a standard of righteousness. God's standard is absolute, sinless perfection. God is infinitely holy. Nothing less than sinless perfection will suffice. Jesus comes and is the sinless one. And he merits righteousness. And then when we believe in him, in justification, the second we believe, he gives us that righteousness. And that means sinful though we are, God sees us as righteous in Christ because he's imputed that to us. He's counted it to us the second we believe in Jesus. Spurgeon says this, The Lord takes a man when he is sinful and conscious of that sin and makes him righteous on the spot. Don't miss that. The second you believe, it's one act, one time. God makes his people righteous by declaring them righteous on the spot. The Lord takes a man when he is sinful and conscious of that sin. He makes him righteous on the spot by putting away his sin and justifying him by the righteousness of faith which comes to him by the worthiness of another who has wrought out a righteousness for him. Isn't that beautiful? Um, I want to ask you this morning, have you believed in the Lord Jesus? That's the great question. Are you trusting in him? Have you taken him at his word? Have you seen your need for his atoning sacrifice? If you have, then he has already declared you righteous. That's something we can never hear about too much. 
We need to be reminded of that. I think I've told you this. Martin Luther was asked once, as the story goes, um, why do you always preach about justification by faith alone? Why do you always preach about the imputed righteousness of Christ? And he said, because you always forget. We always forget. Jesus is putting his righteousness in between sin and judgment. Isn't that glorious? Now, Jesus is going to go on and say many other things. I want us to briefly consider um, the next thing. He's going to talk about the Spirit's revelation in the Son. Now, he's going to say in verse 12, I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, remember, he is speaking to the disciples who are going to be the apostles. So this is a special word for them before it's a word for us. He is saying to the disciples, there is more revelation about me that is going to come to you, but right now you are not able to bear it. Now, what does Jesus mean by you're not able to bear it? We don't know entirely. It may be that he understands that their faith is so unformed that they're not ready for the fuller revelation. They're not even going to know what he meant the rest of this chapter going back and forth about what does he mean he's going away and we can't come? What does that mean? And he's says, well, you're not even really asking me to really understand what I mean. Um, so it may be that. It may also be, and this is very important, it may also be that Jesus is, um, he is in a sense deferring to the work of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit's going to do in them after Pentecost that at that point they couldn't have received because the Spirit had not yet come to them in that special way. Very interesting. By the way, Jesus never actually wrote anything. I know, he wrote the Bible. We, we know that. But he never actually wrote any divine revelation. He always entrusted that to human instruments that he worked through, and here, essentially, Jesus is saying to the apostles, when this, notice this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's not this sort of mystical, oh, the spirit's going to guide me into all truth. That's, that's Jesus saying to people that are going to write the rest of the New Testament epistles and the book of Revelation, when the spirit comes, he's going to lead you into all truth. He is not going to speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, the most helpful way I can put this for you this morning is um, the four Gospels give us the history of Christ and what he does in redemptive history. It gives us the, the inspired history. What the rest of the New Testament gives us is the divine interpretation of who Christ is. So, whether you're reading Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any of the epistles, no matter what they are, they are the fuller revelation of the divine interpretation of the meaning of what we read about in the history of Christ. Some people will actually say, well, you know, ministers don't need to preach the gospel all the time, don't need to preach the cross all the time because Jesus didn't do that. Well, Jesus was going to the cross. That's the only reason he was here. And when we read the New Testament epistles, the Holy Spirit has worked in these men to give us the fuller revelation so that we understand the centrality of the message. Um, that is what Jesus is saying. 
That's what he's saying. In fact, I would go further and say if Christ and him crucified and risen is not central in our preaching, um, in our worship, in our prayers, then the Holy Spirit is not present. The Holy Spirit takes of what is Christ and makes it known to us. Um, my favorite theologian is a guy named Gerhardus Voss. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary back when it was Orthodox and a um, long time ago. And uh, Voss has this really amazing thing. He says, if you want to know, if you want to know whether in your preaching you're hitting the center of gravity, whether you're really preaching properly, then you need to ask if the message of your sermon matches the purport of the table. So we're going to come to the table this morning, and the body and blood of Jesus symbolically is going to be laid out, and God is going to say, that is the central message. This is where I want you to put your focus on. Is, is what we're preaching match that, or does it try to sidestep it? And if it doesn't match that, then it's not faithful to what Jesus is saying here. The Spirit will glorify me. He will take of mine and declare it to you. Now, very briefly, I want us to kind of rush down here to the third point, the Son's victory over the world. We've seen the Son's conviction of the world, the Spirit's revelation of the Son in the world, among the world, and now the Son's victory over the world. Notice, notice verse 33. It's sort of the summary verse, isn't it? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, when we look out at the events of life, especially right now with what's going on with Russia, it's, it's frightening. Look, if we're honest, it is frightening what's happening in this world. Um, and that's not something new. That's not something novel. The world has always been a very frightening place to live in. Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't let your heart be troubled. Um, how do we cope, if I can use that word in a non-therapeutic sense, spiritually, how do we make it through this fallen, evil, wicked, treacherous, and dangerous world without having our faith shaken? Well, Jesus says, look, in me, you have peace. In union with me, in who I am and what I've come to do. Um, I said to the kids this morning in Sunday school, we don't have to fear people killing us because if we're united to Christ, that means we're going to be with him. That's, that's the application of this worst case. By the way, that's the worst case. Somebody kills you. You're still going to go be with Christ. He's going to raise you up in glory on the last day. If you're united to him, that's a guarantee. Um, the world teaches us to be fearful about everything. And Jesus says one thing. He says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. The world is going to hate you. You already told them that back in chapter 15. Don't be surprised. They hate me. They're going to hate you. Don't, don't, don't be troubled by the tribulation you're going to have as my people because in me you have peace. And then he says this, and I love this. In the world you will have tribulation, but 
Be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What does he mean? Jesus already conquered on the cross. He did more than just atone for your sins. He, he, he crushed the head of the evil one. He's already established the everlasting kingdom of God. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. His kingdom is going to be established forever. All the kingdoms of this world are going to come to an end, including America. John Piper says 10,000 years, 10,000 years after America's here, and it's just a footnote, Christ will still be king. Get that into your mind and heart more than Fox News or CNN or whatever else you may watch. Get it all in there deep because 10,000 years after this country is no longer, Christ will still be king. He has conquered. The world has lost. Satan has lost. All the philosophies, all the fake religions, they've all lost. They are all null and void, and the truth of Christ will stand forever. That's why we can have good cheer. Because ultimately, I often am looking for peace and safety, or satisfaction, or security, provisions. And Jesus says, don't do that in me, you have peace, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now that's, you know, that's, that's military language. You know that. Remember I noted at the end of chapter, um, end of chapter 14, he said, rise, let us go from here. And I said, that was a military phrase. He's essentially saying, let's go to war. Well, here he's saying, be of good cheer, I've already won. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet, y'all. He is not even yet hanging on the tree. But he's saying it is as good as finished. That's why Jesus could say to his father in the next chapter, I have finished the work you gave me to do. It's as good as done from all eternity. Christ came, destroy Satan, his kingdom, overcome the world, forgive our sins, redeem us, and ultimately bring us to glory. Um, I think it was Oscar Coleman who came up with this phrase. You know, the cross is essentially D-Day, and the consummation is V-Day. It's already done. If I got those backwards, forgive me. But it's already done. Just not if I got it right. Yes? Okay. The cross is where the victory is won. There's nothing we're waiting for except the consummation. I want to encourage you this morning as we look at this together first that you would that you would be praying, that we would be praying that the Lord Jesus would send the Spirit to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that he would be convicting those around us who don't know him of those things. That is always a good thing for us to be praying. I want to also encourage you that as the testimony of Jesus goes out into the world and as the truth of Christ is, is defended by the Spirit, and is borne witness to by the Spirit, that your faith would be settled as you see the gospel running, as you see the truth of Christ going out through the nations, that that would be an encouragement to your own faith. I also want to encourage you this morning as you study God's Word that you would recognize that the Holy Spirit has come to give us a fuller revelation of Christ to keep us stable and focused on Him in the world. That's the purpose of the fuller revelation. 
And then I want to give you the encouragement that no matter what comes our way, no matter what tribulation comes our way, that we would acknowledge that Jesus has already overcome the world, that we would be assured and have our minds settled in that so that we would not be shaken by the trials and the tribulations. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these words, and we thank you for the truth about Christ. We do pray this morning that you would quiet our hearts with these truths. We do pray that you would send your spirit to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that you would do it among us, but that you would do it in the world as you said that you would. That as he comes and does that, that the truth of our Lord Jesus would be magnified and would be uh, vindicated in the face of an unbelieving world, we do pray that we would know more of the Spirit among us. We do pray, our God, that you would work these truths in us and that you would give us that peace, Lord Jesus, that you have promised to give your disciples on the basis of you overcoming on the cross. So would you do this and more in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning at this time to the Lord's Supper and at